1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: I'm aided today by the fact that on February 7th, the U.S. Department of Justice put out their statistics on the False Claims Act for 2022. So they basically write about how did how many recoveries or judgments, settlements or judgments did the DOJ get in 2022 as a result of False Claims Act cases.
0: That was Mary Inman, partner at Constantine Cannon. She joins me to talk about some of the top FCA health fraud whistleblower cases from 2022, some critical and key Supreme Court cases that will impact the False Claims Act and whistleblower cases going forward, and to review the state of Whistleblowing in 2023. As always with Mary, it's a great podcast. I know you will get a lot out of it and enjoy it very much. Thanks for listening. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you're in for a treat today because Mary Inman rejoins us, one of my favorite people. And Mary is here to talk about one of the firm's great blogs that came out on healthcare frauds from 2022. So, Mary, first of all, welcome back.
1: Thanks so much, Tom. Always great to be on the podcast with you.
0: Uh, Mary, could you remind the firm the about your law firm and your primary practice?
1: Sure. So my firm, I'm a partner in our whistleblower practice. We specialize exclusively in helping whistleblowers access the various U.S. whistleblower reward programs, everything from the False Claims Act, federal and state, all the way to the many agency tip programs like the SEC's IRS, FinCEN, new programs. So we do, we do whistleblowers who are helping the government receive information to allow them to prosecute fraud.
0: Mary, in actually reading through all of your blogs, they were all great and great summaries from 2022, but I just, I didn't fully appreciate the role of whistleblowers is so great in healthcare fraud. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I would be happy to. So, Tom, I'm aided today by the fact that on February 7th, the U.S. Department of Justice put out their statistics on the False Claims Act for 2022. So they basically write about how did, how many recoveries, or judgments, settlements or judgments did the DOJ get in 2022 as a result of False Claims Act cases? Um, I have to put a little asterisk there. The, the lion's share of False Claims Act cases are initiated by whistleblowers, but they don't have to be. The government can initiate False Claims Act cases without a whistleblower, but the overwhelming ones are. So to to your point of how are we doing in healthcare fraud recoveries in 2022, the stats are pretty great. They were overwhelmingly healthcare dominates the recoveries that the government received under the False Claims Act. Of the 2.2 billion in recoveries that DOJ got in 2022, 1.7 billion was as a result of healthcare fraud. So clearly outpaces all the other ones. So it's still top of the heap and not surprisingly at all, given the amount of federal dollars and the state dollars that get poured into federal and state health care programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and of course, our uh, veterans programs as well.
0: Were there any trends that either you saw in the government's numbers or really in the top 10, or is it almost just a case-by-case analysis?
1: There are always trends. Definitely not case by case. And it's actually interesting. I encourage listeners to check out this report. It kind of goes through the types and the categories of healthcare fraud cases that they and recoveries that they got in 2022. And they hit a lot of the same themes that we see year over year. Kickbacks, violations of the anti kickback statute, again, are some of the biggest recoveries. So under the anti kickback statute, it's improper for healthcare providers to pay anything of value called remuneration in order to attract more healthcare beneficiaries to get referrals for patients. And we continue to see a bunch of cases in that area. That route is a regular area for for false claims act recoveries. Another area that continued is something called copay waivers. And so a lot of big pharmaceutical companies have what are called orphan drugs, drugs that have phenomenal price tags, like $40,000 for a script. And what we've continued to see again this year as in past years is that a lot of these um, big pharma companies are creating quote unquote um, charitable foundations to help the copays that um, are required for patients to pay um, because a copay for a $45,000 drug can be just astronomical. And then the government continues to hammer these pharmaceutical companies because these quote-unquote charities are only subsidizing copays for their drugs, not for all drugs. Um, so that's another theme that we've seen. And then finally, I would say, uh, not surprisingly, Part C of Medicare, which is also known as Medicare Advantage, so Medicare Managed Care, HMOs for Medicare, that has been another area of focus where DOJ has brought a bunch of cases against some of the almost all all of the largest insurers for something that's called risk adjustment fraud, something that I think we're going to go into a little bit more depth later, Tom, but it's basically making patients look sicker than they are in order to claim a ma- uh, multiplier on their base capitation rates to basically to get reimbursed more for Medicare. So we're continuing to see big health insurers in the hot seat under Part C. Not surprising because Part C, managed care, is outstripping and outpacing the number of beneficiaries for Medicare is moving almost to the majority being in managed care plans as opposed to traditional fee-for-service plans. So it's not surprising to see the government's enforcement efforts now moving to this area, given that that's where a lot of the beneficiaries are moving to.
0: Mary, last fall, I had an occasion to take a deep dive into the Caremark decision out of the Delaware courts, and that established the duty of oversight of a board for compliance. But the thing that intrigued me that this came up in your remarks was the original Caremark decision, the facts were pharmaceutical company kickback. So, and this was the late 1980s. So, literally 40 years later, you're still telling me that kickbacks is, if not the biggest, one of the biggest frauds. Any idea why?
1: I think it's um because it's so lucrative, right? Um, so one of the cases I'm going to get to talk about today, you wanted me to talk about the top five recoveries of 2022 in the healthcare space. One of them is a case against Biogen. It was a $900 million case, and they were basically paying kickbacks to their, they know who the physicians are, who are their largest prescribers of their drugs, and they were paying kickbacks to encourage them to basically discourage them from prescribing their competitors products and to direct it to them. So, I mean, that's, it's so lucrative to do that, right? It gives you such a competitive advantage. And because Medicare and Medicaid reimbursed for such a large percentage, uh, you can make a lot of money by paying these kickbacks. And I guess, Tom, it's gotten more nuanced. So in 1980, what, the practice looked more like is that to, to pay a kickback, it was something like we're going to fly, fly doctors to fancy conferences and give them speaker's fees and all of these things that are a little bit more obvious that look like a kickback. As we've evolved, the types of kickbacks have evolved and have gotten more nuanced. Like Maybe I'm going to give you a medical directorship or maybe I'm going to give you a break on your rent um, that is more than the fair market value of what I would give you for your office space in my hospital than I would give other providers. So we've gotten more nuanced, um, but the kickback theory still remains.
0: Well, let's go directly to, I ask you to concentrate on the top five and we can just go through them either by what interests you the most or, or number one on down. So where do you want to start?
1: I want to, to Biogen, I already told you about the conduct, uh, the conduct at issue. But what I think is really notable about it is that this case is what is known in our False Claims Act parlance as a declined case. So the way False Claims Act cases can be initiated by whistleblowers is the whistleblower can launch the case. It's called a key tam. And if the government joins the case, the government gets the option to say. I have corroborated your allegations, I want to join your case and take it over, and that's called an intervene case, or the government can decide either for reasons of merit or reasons of resources. I don't think it's meritorious enough for me to intervene in, or I don't have the resources to join every great key TAM case, so I'm going to decline and let the whistleblower go it alone. So it's really remarkable that a whistleblower can take a case even if the government declines. This is what happened in this case. The case was first filed in Biogen by whistleblowers in 2012. 20 years later, sorry, 10 years later, it settles for $900 million. So it's basically the whistleblower's who brought in this amazing recovery for the government. So I think it's notable, and actually the figures that we're seeing, two of the top 10 cases from 2022 were declined cases. So this one brought in $900 million settlement, and I'm looking for another one brought in $51 million. It's number four, which I'll talk about in a minute, a case um, – involving the Florida birth-related neurological industry corporation association. That was another decline case bringing in $51 million. So I think what we're seeing is a trend of more declined cases. I should note, it is much harder to get a victory in a declined case as a, as a whistleblower lawyer for the obvious reason. Defendants can say they point in the courtroom to what we call the empty chairs defense. that the government victim. Is not in the courtroom, ladies and gentlemen, the jury. It's only the former disgruntled employee that's here today. Um, so it's a much harder hurdle, and it's much harder to win. It's you know exponentially harder to succeed in these cases. So I'm not saying that we think that the floodgates are going to open and we're going to see a ton of successful decline cases, but it's just notable that this has happened. So that was number one. Number two. Number two is Mallinckrodt, so another pharmaceutical company. And I think what's interesting here is it was a $260 million recovery. And the allegations are basically that Mallinckrodt underpaid their rebates. So there's a program called the Medicaid Drug Rebate Program. And under that program, uh, companies, pharmaceutical companies have to basically tell the average manufacturing price to the government. So when you have a newer drug, you have to peg that price. You peg your price and say, I'm not going to get paid more than a particular percentage. So what happened here is that Mallinckrodt improperly calculated their rebate by claiming that a drug that they developed in 1990 was actually termed a new drug in 2013. Uh, and so that allowed them to greatly decrease the amount of the rebate that they would have owed to the Medicaid program. So this is something that I think is interesting because we've seen similar cases in 2015 against similar settlements. In 2015 against AstraZeneca for this behavior, $54 million. Bristol-Myers Squibbs 2021 for $75 million. So we're starting to see a trend here of cases where pharmaceutical companies are underpaying what they should be paying in rebates to the medicare program and this was for actually the medicaid program so i thought that one was interesting and it also involved what this is the drug it issues called ask Her gel and this is again one of these orphan drugs where not only did malincrot underpay their rebates they also had one of these charitable foundations where they Basically, doing copay subsidies for this drug, and it was found to be improper. So, I like that one because it's two trends going on at the same
0: time. So, what's up for number three, Mary?
1: So, number three um, is Another, as you can tell, Medicare fraud and Medi-Cal fraud, this is that involves Medi-Cal, which is the state of California's Medicaid program. They have something called, we're seeing a trend in this case, number three, combined two cases, two cases involving the same activity. They It was a $93.2 million settlement when you take two cases combined both cases involve two different defendants doing the same thing they're basically manipulating something that's known as the medical loss ratio and so what the medical loss ratio says is it dictates to company to healthcare providers that you have to make sure that in the case of the state of California 85% of the expenses that you pay are actually The money that you pay is spent on medical expenses, not administrative expenses. So in other words, we want to ensure that hospitals aren't paying exorbitant salaries to their CEOs and not actually spending the money on medical services. And so here, both of these cases, one involving Ventura County and another one involving Dignity, Health, and Tenant, they both had cases where they were mischaracterizing what was a medical expense in order to try and uh, suggests that they're meeting this 85 percent requirement so they're actually in both of these cases that whistleblowers have alleged these plans optum health dignity health and tenant were actually spending less than the 85 percent required and they were able to do that by mischaracterizing how they were doing some of the spending so it's just another kind of false billing scenario and um what happens is if you anyway so that's 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 a new fraud that we're seeing, and it was notable to me that we had two big settlements, $70 million in the case of Ventura County, $22 million in the case of Dignity Health for basically the same practice.
0: Mary, how about the case entitled Florida Birth-Related Neurological <laughs> Injury Compensation Association?
1: Yeah, so this one's interesting. As I was saying earlier, it's a declined case. And it involves a really interesting rule, which is that In the world of healthcare, I think we've all seen this when we've received our own um, bills coming back on what we, we've had a service and we've had multiple insurers, um, which insurer pays? And so the rule is that Medicaid should be the payer of last resort. So that means it only pays when other insurers are not responsible. So for instance, if Medicare were responsible or if a private health insurer was responsible, they need to pay first. We only want to dip into the public Medicaid dollars if there's no other provider. And so here in this case, the whistleblower had accused the association of basically shifting costs that it should have been reimbursing onto the Florida Medicaid program. So that's obviously a no-no. <laughs> so that's what that case is involves. But again, interestingly, uh, we did not have the government intervene in that case. It was just the whistleblower who brought it forward.
0: And bringing in number five.
1: So number five is um, two cases. So the defendant is Essilor, the settling company. Essilor got hit twice in 2022. Um, the first time they got hit earlier in, in the year was for $22 million for paying kickbacks to optometrists and ophthalmologists, basically to induce them to prescribe Essilor products. Essilor is a manufacturer of optical lenses. well what's interesting, again, hopefully for your listeners, is that it It later in the year for the same conduct. So the first settlement was under the False Claims Act. Later in the year, it got hit for $23.8 million for the same kickbacks, but under a different program that folks may not know about, the states of California and Illinois have whistleblower reward programs under their departments of insurance, and they incentivize whistleblowers to bring information about fraud against private insurers instead of public insurance, right? The False Claims Act is, is focused on fraud against Medicare and Medicaid. In California and in Illinois, if you're defrauding private insurer, the insurance departments incentivize whistleblowers to come forward. Why is that? Well, of course, it's because they, as in, is Department of Insurance and, and government insurance officials, they don't want premiums to rise unnecessarily. So when a fraud happens, it will often impact us by we have to pay higher premiums. So that's why they care. So what was interesting is that the California Department of Insurance, to some whistleblowers brought this information to them as well. And they basically said that those claims were tainted by kickbacks and and they brought it under this separate program. So basically $45 million later, SLR is hit both by the federal government and by the California Department of Insurance, both in cases initiated by whistleblowers for the same conduct, but for different victims. First victims being Medicare Medicaid, second victims being private insurers who also got hit by this and caused premiums to rise. So I thought that was really unusual and something that's probably lesser known to folks. People are probably not as aware of these additional whistleblower reward programs.
0: I'd like to change the focus a little bit because there have been some FCA cases recently in the news. And in fact, Senator Grassley has spoken about them. I have heard you talk about Senator Grassley, what he means to the whistleblower community, to the group of lawyers like yourself who fight fraud, waste and abuse. And I've heard you speak very passionately about him. He is today, I don't remember how old he is, but he's still passionate about this. And when he gets his dander up, he he conditioned out with the best of them. And so I was wondering if I could maybe ask you about the two cases that came out of the Seventh Circuit that are now up in front of the Supreme Court. I do agree with Senator Grassley very rarely, but I do agree with him that these case results seemed almost absurd to me just reading the opinions what is the issue in front of the Supreme Court and what is Senator Grassley where does he see this
1: Yeah it's interesting I really am glad you raised this cuz Senator Grassley we speak passionately about him because he is actually seen to be one of the biggest champions of these whistleblower reward statutes and programs including the fa- He's the grandfather of the False Claims Act and um, starting in 1986 he was one of the people behind the initiative to amend the False Claims Act to make it, to remove some restrictions that have sort of made it the success that it is today. So he's remarkable in that respect and he's also always watching for bad case law that's percolating up from either activist judges or from defendants who are regularly hit with these cases. They always kind of want to, to curb the power of the act so he was talking at a conference this week He said he wants to basically bring forward more legislation for amendments because he's worried about these cases that you were referencing that are wreaking havoc or have the potential to wreak havoc. So the biggest one, and I don't think I'm being overly sensationalizing it when I'm saying this case is called the super value case. To me, in my 26 years of practice, this is the one that's the most dangerous in terms of really negatively impacting the ability of whistleblowers to successfully bring cases under the False Claims Act, not just whistleblowers, but the government themselves. So in the Super Value case, the Seventh Circuit made a decision, and now the Supreme Court has taken it up on cert. So it will be decided by the Supreme Court, and Super Value, like it sounds, is a gross grocery chain, they subscription drugs covered by Medicare and Medicaid. And the the fraud really involves a rule that the government says that we will pay the usual and customary costs and nothing more for for drugs. So in other words, if you're paying if you're you know if you're a super value and you're charging other folks who are not the government. So in this case customers who don't have insurance, you're charging them for the same drug a lot less then the government should get the benefit of that price. You shouldn't charge the government more. So in that case, there's some great internal evidence that suggested that this practice of doing this and violating this rule, that there was a clear violation of the rule. And that at least there's some evidence that suggests that they were trying to hide the fact that they knew about this, this disparity. And, and so the problem that it creates is this scenario. You could have a, uh, you could have a case uh, in, in super value. We have evidence that suggests that they knowingly said these false claims. And what we see now <coughs> is that the interpretation of knowledge here of like what the company actually could go beyond just what they subjectively knew to some sort of objective idea. So the idea would be if lawyers 10 years later can come with a innocent explanation for why They were doing this, even though we have evidence that at the time they knew it was wrong, they knew they were violating, that that some way could excuse them. So it really has a lot of potential to basically bless a lot of fraud that could go on and override intent evidence. So it's really scary. And I think that is why you're hearing Senator Grassley say, see this lawsuit moving its way through the Supreme Court. We've been fortunate that the Supreme Court is good at protecting the False Claims Act. So for those of us watching this case, we're cautiously optimistic. One of the reasons for that, you'll find interesting, Tom, that the last time there was a major case of this kind of size um, involving the Supreme Court and the False Claims Act, it was called the Stevens decision, and they were trying to figure out whether even whistleblower is constitutional. And you'd be interested to know that Scalia, Thomas, the justices who are really more, were more, were and more of the strict constructionists, they were able to go back to the statutes from 1863 and say original intent of this is to allow whistleblowers to be standing in the shoes of the government to basically have standing. So it's just my way of saying that the Supreme Court has had to look and opine on the False Claims Act several times. And fortunately for us, so far has continued to you know uphold the language of the of the law, and we think that that's hopefully what they will do here. But it's very scary, and I think that's why you're seeing Senator Grassley affirmatively saying he introduced legislation to clarify anything or if something goes wrong with the Supreme Court decision. So you asked about one; the other one I wanted to talk about the other thing that he mentions. The other case he mentions that is a concern to him is that the government did come with another False Claims Act decision and something called the Escobar decision, and it deals with materiality. So what that means is that under the Claims Act, a false claim has to be material to the government's decision to pay. In order to establish liability, you have to establish materiality, meaning if if it was, you know, the government ordered a part— and it didn't specify a color, the part worked, it turned out to be pink, but it had nothing to do with the functionality of it. Well, maybe it's not material. if you made a misrepresentation about its pinkness or its color, doesn't really matter to me because it still is functional, right? What we're seeing now in the wake of the Escobar decision, and I think this is something Senator Grassley wants to clean up, is that a number of courts are reaching various and differing interpretations on what's required to show materiality. And they're really making it too easy for fraudsters who can basically obvious arguing that obvious frauds are not considered material because the government decided to pay. So you can see the argument would be, well, if the government really cared about this and was really defrauded, then why are they still paying for these services? And that is a problem because a lot of times the government has no option if it is the scenario where only one contractor makes this part and it needs to go to armed services, like the fact that they continue to pay for it doesn't mean that they bless the fraud. It means that they don't have other options. Um, Similarly with healthcare services, right? If you're continuing to pay, even though you know that there's Medicaid fraud going on, it might be because there aren't other providers in that area. So it has been another area that's kind of been wreaking havoc cases of obvious fraud and allowing fraudsters to get away on what are seen as technicalities or ambiguities um so that's what he's trying to clean up um we'll see if he needs to i mean he certainly could with the bar decision with super value it's going to be in front of the supreme court this term so we'll see
0: well, Mary, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But as always, it was great. We're going to link to the firm's uh, blog post on this topic, and it's also going to have the links to your wonderful series of, of blog posts. But I was wondering if our listeners wanted any additional information, would there be another place or places for them to go, or should they just go to the Constantine Cannon website? You
1: can definitely go to our website. We're also on Twitter at CC Whistleblower Insider. You can also find us on LinkedIn, but our website's probably the best first, first place, this first shop stopping, last, last place to stop for shop.
0: (laughs) Well, Mary, as always, it has been great. I wanted to thank you again. I look forward to continuing this conversation.
1: Likewise, Tom. Thanks so much for having me.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will join me for our next episode where we take up another deep dive into compliance. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please send me an email or give me a shout-out. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.